Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Welcome to another Tableside Q&A session of the Journey Church Podcast. The mission of Journey Church is to honor God by making more disciples, people who learn about, love like, and live for Jesus Christ. These tableside conversations are a chance to dig deeper into the content we're studying on Sunday mornings. This week, we're wrapping up our series on the atonement and looking forward to Easter morning. So I'd like to start, I'm here with um, Pastor Jim and Pastor Tyler, and I'd like to start, uh, Tyler gave the sermon last week, and can you just share with us a little bit, um, do a quick recap, what was the sermon about, how does it fit in the larger context of the series, all that. Yeah, uh, kind of working backwards from the end of the sermon back to the beginning. In Leviticus 16, one of the things that the atonement is doing is it is opening a way for us to connect with the transcendent and to have meaning in our lives. Uh, so it does so by grounding us in a big story that God is telling and in putting our lives individually into this big story we find meaning and understanding for the things that we encounter and how we live our lives. And we find them essentially because we desire, I believe each person has in themselves, a desire to encounter the transcendent or to be more accurate with Christian terminology. I I was intentionally using uh, kind of new age terminology in terms of transcendent, but Christian terminology, we would say the divine or God. So... I started with a quote from Sam Harris, a well-known atheist, on his book dealing with spirituality and how Sam Harris doesn't really have categories to understand spirituality. And yet, as he debates Christians, as he writes books about atheism and philosophy and things like that, he can't help but encounter the fact that there's something in him uh, that goes beyond the material and he feels a need to meditate, to uh, contemplate. He feels a need to touch something of the divine and to have devotion to something. So the concept was that Leviticus 16, this really distant, culturally distant book from us, actually speaks to the two greatest human urges, which is an, an urge to understand things and have meaning and an urge to connect with the bigger thing out in the world that, that we understand in a sense we were made for. They're really two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah they're, the, they're the two questions that basically every world religion is asking. Mm-hmm. So the Abrahamic world religions are actually, all three of them are asking <clears throat> both questions. Though in Judaism, like I said in the sermon, the story's incomplete. So you can't really situate yourself in the story of the Jewish people Uh, if you just have the Old Testament, because you don't have the complete story. You have all these plot holes and things like that in terms of what is the Day of Atonement doing? How do I understand Isaac? Uh, What what do I do now that there's no altar or temple and no high priesthood? How do I understand all of those things? Well, the story breaks down. Islam takes the story in a completely different direction. And actually, the way it takes the story, it'll explicitly tell you one of the big differences between the Christian view of heaven and the islamic view of heaven is in islam heaven god is not present it's a paradise for people but you actually never dwell with god as the end of the book of revelation says uh, in revelation 21 4 that god will be the god of his people and that they will dwell with him and so you actually end up still, as it tells a different story, it tells a more coherent story actually than Judaism, but it fails to actually grapple with the problem of transcendence. Right, and, and so um, this problem of meaning and transcendence shows up in every culture, no matter what your worldview. If you are born human, maybe part of the Imago Dei, that makes us different than my wonderful, thoughtful dog. Uh, that we all come to a place of asking this question. Um, I've heard, I've heard this title, um, the college questions. Um, who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Okay. Actually, that's a great point. I was going to ask, I feel like meaning I can ground myself in, uh, why is there something rather than nothing? What, what am I doing here? Those are all meaning questions. But when I, when you use the word transcendence, 
uh, and maybe this is we live in sort of a naturalistic, materialistic culture that says what's real are things we can study and scientifically know and touch and observe with our senses. Um, what are the questions that are the transcendence questions? What are those questions that people are asking? Uh, please feel free to jump in. But what I started with of saying two sides of the same coin, mm -hmm. once you remove transcendence, you erase meaning. That's how I, that's my personal journey. Like take out God out of the picture. This is empty. This is meaningless. Well, that would be Friedrich Nietzsche would say the exact same thing. Yeah. So he would say that if, if God is dead, so is morality and so is meaning. So uh -huh. you can do whatever. And now I'm not a Nietzscheite. Mm -hmm. Nietzschean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Nietzschean. <laughs> but, uh, but wow, he was telling the mm -hmm. truth right there. Mm -hmm. You know, a broken clock is right twice a day. He was right about a lot of things. Yeah. He just uh, was also <laughs> intentionally wrong in how he lived those out. But yes. I think... I think one of the ways in which transcendence and meaning connect together is they are both fundamentally asking the question of identity. Who am I? The, the problem of meaning is who am I? How do I understand my life? Uh, my life flows forward into a series of moments and all of these events happen to me and it becomes a very kind of dark or irrational place to live without asking questions about who I am fundamentally. Similarly, the problem of transcendence has that identity aspect in terms of I look out and I realize I am actually rather small. So there's one, one thing I cut out of my sermon was uh, the lyrics of a song from a band called Thrice, which is one of my favorite songs, and it's titled Beggars. It's based off of uh, the last words of Martin Luther. So uh, it, it might be sort of mythological in terms of Luther's uh, last words, but it has been said that many of his students were gathered around him as he was uh, slowly dying, and as he breathed out one of his last breaths, he said, we are truly beggars all. And so this band Thrice, who has a Christian front man named Dustin Kensrue, took that and then modeled a song around it where it challenges each of us to kind of think about the things at which we have and whether or not we have any responsibility for them. So he speaks to uh, people of power and he says, you know, can, did, were you the one who designed how your form and structure was? Mm -hmm. He speaks to the, the people who have money and he asks, you know, to a certain extent, do you understand that all things hang as if by a string over the darkness? Like you, like, you are really rather small. And so the, the problem of transcendence is really an, an aspect of identity too. When I realize that my identity in this world is, is rather small, uh, I realize that things, as we say this, I'm looking out uh, Jim's window at these just massive mountains and just thinking, how can anybody think of themselves as rather big uh, in light of that? Yet there's something inside of us that tells us that we are uh, deeply important. And that's what you're getting at, Jim, with, with the image of God, is the image of God does this thing where we are made in God's likeness. In order to be made in the likeness of something, fundamentally you have to be different than it. So in order to be made in the likeness of God, I have to not be God. Mm -hmm. That being said, to be made in the likeness of God is one of the most uh, great, nothing else. These mountains I'm looking at are not made in the likeness of God. I come from a beach town watching, and I grew up watching the waves, which are these immensely powerful like things in terms of water moving and crushing and it'll beat sand it'll beat rocks into sand it'll it tears down everything over time and yet the water in the mountains aren't made in the image of god uh, the glory or grandeur of any animal uh like you were saying about your dog not made in the image of god and so that too is it's sort of tied to the issue of identity who are we because we realize we're simultaneously both really uh important in a sense but also quite mm -hmm. in our Western world. Once we erase the, uh, the transcendent, we are left with lesser gods to consume our lives with and to, to just say, let's, let's run after this or that or the other thing in the West. There's a very clear set of lesser gods that we're, we're famous for. Um, shall I read this? Sure. Okay. So this, this was a gift to me, um, upon graduation with my last degree. Um, 
becoming Dallas Willard. And it's and it's at the end of the end of the book. My my bookmarker was in here when I pulled it off the shelf today, and I believe it was so profound that I might have handed it off to my son and said, "You got to read this portion." But it's basically from a from a book from leadership guru. Uh, Bob Buford, it's being cited in, in the biography of Dallas Willard because Bob Buford was interviewing Dallas Willard for his book, Finishing Well. And it says here, a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worth it, uh, page and in, in, in a quarter. Uh, uh, Gary Moon, who writes the biography, is, is citing this and says, the opening, opening line of the epi- epigraph, a quote from Tom Morris reads, and so this is Tom Morris, the greatest case of mistaken identity in modern society relates to the four marks of public success, money, power, fame, and status. So those are our lesser gods. Now, Bob Buford then opens the chapter with this haunting observation. This is Bob Buford's words. Success seems to make more demands than it satisfies. The quest for success allows no rest. Our sense of accomplishment seems to evaporate with the achievement of each goal, and immediately the need arises to find another goal. He asks the question, is there a way off this treadmill? Buford brings Dallas Willard into the discussion with a series of questions. And a few paragraphs later, the, the country boy philosopher, because uh, Dallas Willard was a country boy and farm boy and a crazy life and upbringing. Uh, one of the mo- foremost Christian philosophers of our age, now, now with Jesus. But in, in, uh, in his interview, Dallas Willard uh, shares this illustration. He says, one of my favorite stories is about a dog, about the dog races in Florida. They train these dogs to chase an electric rabbit. And one night the rabbit broke down and the dogs caught it, but they didn't know what to do with it. They were just leaping around, yelping and biting one another, totally confused about what was happening. I think that's a picture of what happens to all sorts of people to catch the rabbit in their life, whether it's wealth or fame or beauty or a bigger house or whatever. The prize isn't what they thought it would be. That's a problem if you don't have something transcendent. I, those are Jim Roden's words I'm ex, ex, putting in there. Um, and when they finally get it, they don't know what to do with their lives. This is a huge factor in finishing badly. People need a rabbit that won't break down. But that's not something the superficial values of this world can really give them. So the need for transcendence. So he goes on... Um, Moon says, so what are the characteristics of a rabbit that won't break down? Buford asks. First of all, Dallas answered, it has to be tied to something that transcends the individual's life. And he offers a simple prescription. We should devote the rest of our lives to doing those things we know to be good and profitable for humanity. And that means especially for human beings who live around us. We should devote our lives to advancing their well-being. But this type of significance and success, Dallas continued, will require surrender. I don't think you can really manage surrender within the parameters of success. You actually have to give up. You have to surrender yourself to this other good before you can achieve the kind of significance you're talking about. What makes this type of surrender so difficult to achieve? Dallas believes that most of us are terrified of any type of dying, especially death to the controlling self-ego. And most, of, most don't believe that paradise is actually in session right now. But for those who are willing to surrender, to become a blind dog following the voice of an invisible friend, they will find the joy of eternal living. They will find that they are finally chasing a rabbit, living interactively in Christ's presence that won't break down. If I can attach something else to that, this is a a quote from a New Yorker article back in the um, mid-90s, I think. And it says... Uh, it's this writer who wrote for the New Yorker who was, when she moved to New York, she was she became friends in these sort of uh, artsy hangouts with a bunch of people who became just ridiculously famous. Uh, so she writes about a handful of them. I pity celebrities. No, really, I do. The minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute he or she becomes a monster. And then she named some of her friends. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were all once perfectly pleasant human beings with whom you might uh, lunch on a slow Tuesday afternoon. But now they have become supreme beings, and their wrath is awful. It is not what they had in mind. The night each of them became famous, they wanted to shriek with relief. Finally, now I will be adored. Invincible, I will be magic. The morning after... That night, each of them became famous. 
they wanted to take an overdose of barbiturates. All their fantasies had been realized, and yet the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now, because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with real fulfillment and happiness had happened, and nothing had changed. They were still them. And the disillusionment turned them into how turned them to howling and insufferability. And so you and you can cite this all over the place. We were actually before we started recording throwing around uh, like John Mayer. Uh, there's a famous interview with Tom Brady, who is arguably statistically the best quarterback to ever play football, and have him after setting tons of records say that you know none of it really matters. And so you just have this sense of if accomplishment is what you're hanging your hat on, if it's about becoming great yourself in order to fill this void, which Dallas Willard, and we would argue the void exists because of us being made for the transcendent, Mm -hmm. that we are made for God. And so as Augustine says, we will only rest when we rest in God. Uh, Blaise Pascal, it was another one that I I cross-linked with Augustine. There... Blaise Pascal said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And reflected, I'm doing pre-study for a really fantastic sermon series on Esther. And you see these two principles just in technicolor in Haman, running out of that worldview without transcendence. He is his own God. And you see it in Mordecai, who his identity is tied to a much deeper and transcendent God. So that's all I'm going to say. We're not going to go into that. But So if I can sum up, I guess what I'm hearing from these quotes from the, what the book is called Becoming Dallas Willard yes. is a biography of Dallas Willard. Yes. And then your quote out of The New Yorker is that when we use the word transcendence, which Tyler, you said is like a philosophical mm-hmm. word, um, the way, the way I'm hearing it from everything you're saying is um, any, any God but God is a bad God. Mm-hmm. In that, and, and that the qualities that makes God who he is, his attributes, his eternality, his otherness, his omniscience, his perfectness, and all of his character and attributes, that nothing else has that, and so they fail. Right. right. And so what we're looking for, if it, when we say this, I'm looking for the transcendent, it's I'm looking for the thing that will not fail. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I hang my hat anywhere else, it's going to fail. And the experiment has been run yeah. billions of yeah. times over yeah. and recorded for us in many stories, many, many uh, examples, illustrations, testimonies, um, throughout scripture, the story it keeps showing up. You tie yourself to any lesser God and it's. Um, okay, really quick. So I have my Bible open right now to Isaiah 40, which is, is I'm not going to read it, but Isaiah 40 is everything that you said in one thing, which is here's, here's God with his might. He takes care of his lambs. Who is he? He created the world and is everything. The idols are nothing. Who is he? He is the God who created everything. And it ends by saying, um, I'm just thinking about this in terms of what, what do we get when we get transcendence, right? What is the thing we're looking for? The rabbit that doesn't break down, that's what you're saying, right? Um, uh, it says at the end of Isaiah 40, he, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint or he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable and he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength, so that even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. That makes me think of the dogs chasing the rabbit. They shall run and not be weary, right? They just go and go and go and go because they're chasing the Lord, the everlasting Lord, the creator of all things. Um, Okay, really quick. What does this have to do with atonement? <laughs> so I forgot. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. Uh, in the atonement, the well, let me rephrase it this way. We we feel a deep desire to connect with that transcendent thing. That's what we've just been talking about. We cannot do that. 
And that was one of the things I was trying to draw out in my sermon in terms of uh, that I think comes out of the context of Leviticus 16. So Leviticus 16 is trying to explain how a problem is solved. And that problem is grounded in Leviticus 10. That two priests, Nadab and Abihu, mm-hmm. attempted to draw near to the Lord. And when they did, they were killed because they did not do so in the right way. We're not explained what the right way is. Uh, commentators look at Leviticus 10 and they think there's probably four different things that it could be. But the fact that it's not clear in Scripture, because we believe that God is the ultimate author of Scripture, tells us something important. It tells us that God didn't necessarily want to make it clear because the important thing was not the individual thing these two did wrong, mm-hmm. but the general principle mm-hmm. that you must approach God rightly. Now, because we are fallen sinful creatures, and this is the, I referred to the play acting in the Day of Atonement, because we're fallen sinful creatures, we can't approach God, except for in the Old Covenant, he made these kind of symbolic ways to approach him, but the symbols were always incomplete. And so I talked about how in Leviticus 16, the image you get is kind of, you're laying symbol on top of symbol in order to get a picture that's meaningful, but the symbols, they don't, they point to something, but they're not a reality in themselves. Mm. So we talked about this with the Passover, right? You paint the blood on the doorpost. Why can't the angel of death come in? It has nothing to do with the actual blood. It's not like that sets up a force field and keeps the angel of death out. It's that God sees the symbol of the blood and passes over. And so the same thing's taking place in all of these sacrifices. The symbols are pointing forward to something. And that thing is the ultimate solution which allows us to connect to the transcendent. And that's that our sin needs to be atoned for. And we see that, I think, most clearly in the the beginning and end of the Gospel of Mark. It begins with Jesus' baptism where he identifies with the sins of the people as he enters into the waters which they are being baptized in as they confess their sins, which mirrors one goat, which is sent off into the wilderness after Aaron the high priest confesses sins over it. And it goes off into the wilderness to meet Azazel, likely a demon, just as Jesus is cast out of uh, the baptismal waters by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to, uh, to encounter Satan. And then at the end of the gospel, he is crucified, thus fulfilling the role of the second goat who's slaughtered for the sins of the people. And so in the atonement, you have the dealing with sin that Leviticus 16 is pointing forward to, but incomplete because the symbol doesn't actually have a metaphysical reality. Well, Jesus' baptism and death actually has a real metaphysical reality, and that reality is it atones for our sin so that we can draw near to the presence of the holy thing, the transcendent. Because that, that sin that needs to be dealt with is the barrier. Between us and the transcendent. And that's why uh, nothing else works. Mm -hmm. Because, well, there's two, it's like there's two parts. The first part is nothing else is like God except God. And the second part is you can't get to God any way but that way. Right? right? Like there's, so nothing else will work on one hand and there's no other way to get to him Mm -hmm. on the other hand. So it's very like tight. Um, what, What did we... We're in Hebrews. We did he- two parts of Hebrews on Sunday. We did Hebrews 4 and 5, and we did Hebrews 10, mm-hmm. right? Which one of those talks about the shadow? Is that the 10? Ooh, I believe that's 10. Cause I, I, I don't think I read that. I was part. thinking about how the writer of Hebrews says these are, these are shadows. Mm-hmm. These, all of the Levitical stuff is shadows, and how a shadow isn't actually a thing, mm-hmm. right? A shadow doesn't have mass i guess it's yeah. just light you know and and but a shadow points to something else but when that something else when you look at the something else you don't you don't the shadow can help you if you can't see that other thing but once you see it you don't need the shadow right because the shadow is not actually a thing well and it's it's, a, it's is, playing with a philosophical yeah. category that goes back to plato which is the shadow oh, is like a the symbol cave. yeah like the, the shadow cave. is a symbol on the wall yes that if yeah. that's all you're looking at you don't understand reality right yeah, and it's so, not real. Yeah, yeah, so in Plato's allegory of the cave, the goal is to get outside of the cave in order to see the source of light. That's what yeah. Hebrews is talking about. He's yeah. actually, I think, playing around with, with Plato's, uh, Plato's, Plato's imagery based off of what he's doing linguistically. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying all of these things in the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus are just shadows on the wall. You need to turn around and look at the source of light, which is the sun not S-U-N, but S-O-N of God, which is Jesus. Mm. 
Now I wish I had paid more attention in my college philosophy class when we had to read Plato. <laughs> Nobody pays attention then. They only want to later. So, okay. Um, anything else on transcendence and meaning? From oh, plenty, I mean, but, <laughs> but no, I mean, for time's sake. Well, I want to I connect that if it, then to um, kind of my other big question to expand on from Sunday, which you talked about a little bit. Let's go back to Nadab, Nadab and Abihu. Did I say that right? Nadab and Abihu. And there, what you said, we don't know exactly how they um, violated the instructions, but we know they did. And so what's our takeaway from that? How do we understand that? Well, I, I brought that out, and I didn't use this term in the scriptures, but I brought that out in, or in the sermon, sorry. But I brought that out in terms of what would be called the regulative principle. As far as I understand it, there's three basic approaches to how the church worships when they gather on Sunday. There's the normative principle, the regulative principle, and then there's, it's not really a principle, it's just do whatever you want, that's fine. So the normative principle would be we derive our norms, uh, in other words, the things that we normally do or norm connecting to uh, laws, in a sense, uh, we derive those from scripture. So the normative principle would tell you things like you only sing songs from the the Psalter, from the book Mm -hmm. of Psalms, Mm -hmm. because these are God's worship songs. You can sing all the other songs, outside of church you can sing them in your car listening to the radio you can sing them at your home with your kids but when you gather for worship you only sing from the psalter you only essentially do the worship practices as we find them prescribed in scripture so and, some would and be, that's the normative that's well the normative. and yeah and that's like the church of god mm-hmm. that that doesn't see any musical instruments in the new testament right so there are no musical instruments in the right. church service. So historically, that would be connected to the reformer Ulrich Zwingli, yeah. who is uh, Swiss, I want to say. And, and yeah, so they would remove the instruments. They would, uh, they, except for the ones that you find in Scripture, the lyre, the harp, things like that. No one knows how to play those anymore. Well, yeah. <laughs> Somebody but, knows how to play a harp. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. well, not, not the Old Testament okay, that's style. Okay, that's right, that's right. Uh-huh. Ten-stringed harp. Yes. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so you have the normative principle would be grounding these things. Everything we do, we must find not the principle necessarily, but the actual act in Scripture. Okay. So and then the regular, So that's the extreme. That is, that's that the extreme the position, extreme. yeah. Uh, and uh, since we said the word extreme, I always hesitate to use the word extreme because I think people automatically hear extreme bad, moderate good. Extreme doesn't mean wrong, though we do disagree with the normative principle at this church. Uh, so I just point that out to to it's the just, extreme. It's just yes. one end. Of the actually, yeah, it's just there, one there's end some the merit to it, mm-hmm. but not the extreme. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's one end of the expect the spectrum. Yeah, so yeah. I don't mean by extreme obviously wrong. I just mean that is one view. You can't go further than that one view, uh-huh. unless you just stop talking. I guess mm-hmm. that would be the uh, the regular principle. Then would be sort of the moderate position, which would be. Again, moderate doesn't necessarily mean right, but moderate in terms of we derive principles for worship from the scriptures. So then we might, you might say something in terms of the, the regulative principle, looking at, say, the Psalms and say, our worship music should essentially uh, mirror the content of the Psalms. So it doesn't have to be the Psalms, but we should look at the Psalms and kind of go, what are they doing structure-wise? What are they uh, doing thematically? How do we, do we take certain principles from them? And deriving from that, what you'll see is there's very long psalms, there's very short psalms. There's psalms that focus on one characteristic of God. There's psalms that literally list the entire alphabet naming characteristics Mm -hmm. of God. And so what you find is, oh, there's a lot of freedom in here, but we still get the general structure. Mm -hmm. I call it an envelope. Yeah, so I mean... yeah, uh, Like uh, like there's, there's boundaries, there's guardrails on both sides. Right. I like to use sports analogies. So, you know, soccer doesn't make sense unless you have the rectangle, right? Yeah. The regulative principle is painting the rectangle and then saying within this rectangle, you can do basically whatever you want. You can play football, you can play soccer, you can play, I don't know, field hockey, but you have to play within this rectangle. So that's but the But the normative principle. principle would be you have to play the same plays that mm-hmm. whatever sports team played that set the norm, right? Like yes. essentially you have All to go in their All football games can steps. only use the exact same plays as the 1986 yeah, NFC yeah, yeah. Conference yeah. Championship game where the giant, the 49ers yeah. beat the Dallas Cowboys. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So we've got normative principle on one side. We've got um, regulative think, uh, principle in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then what's on the other side? I mean, it doesn't really have a name. I would generally associate it with either like real low, low church evangelicalism or Pentecostalism, where you've got... One of the ways you can think about it is you're on a sliding spectrum from normative, and as you go away from normative, you are increasing the amount of improvisation and freedom. Mm -hmm. So when you hit the other end of the spectrum, Mm -hmm. it's nearly all improvisation. Mm -hmm. There's very little plan. It's very much sort of like... Spontaneous. Yes, it's spontaneous. Spontaneous, um, that's a big thing that's happening right now in like uh, live worship settings is mm-hmm. they'll do the song and then they'll have the spontaneous time after it. Right. Yeah. And so, so you have those sorts of, we have a place where we're starting from and then whatever happens yeah. after that, it's up to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And you have lots of freedom in there. Although we ought to ask questions about does that freedom, freedom comport with what we see in the scriptures? Mm-hmm. So does that, does that gel well with what we see in terms of God being upset with Cain's sacrifice that he has no regard for, with the with the worship of the golden calves, which are worshipped by the name Yahweh, which tells us that it's not, it's not that they are worshiping a like I said in the sermon, they're not worshiping a false god. They're worshiping the true God falsely, mm-hmm. and God is very upset with it. And throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, you see this trend of God being concerned with how He's worshipped, which is one of the reasons why uh, we and most churches in the EFCA would settle on the regulative principle. There are some guardrails here. But those texts, actually, they don't tell us specifically what they are. So we base the guardrails around the fact that God cares about what he, what, how he is worshipped. And there are certain things, like, say, the Lord's Supper, that he has explained, here's how I want you to practice this. Yeah, and I'll, I'll make this observation that it's not only corporate worship, but individual uh, Christian lifestyle as well. And so pe- some people... They might think, hey, I'm not forcing this. I'm not bringing it into church worship service, but I like to do this thing. And um, even that, I would say, has the same principles. You're still, gonna, you're still going to be accountable to God for that yeah. and, and to freelance or to restrict because you can go extreme on any, either side that there's application for church body life, but also it's not just a question of conscience and it's what you like. Um, in your own personal life either. Uh, for instance, Cain and Abel, that was not corporate that we can tell. Right, right. They were individuals making individual choices. Um, and I would even make, even though communion is a together thing, uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 is let a man examine himself. Not let me, let me examine the entire congregation for you. Um, so we have individual work to do and in in that, that follows us throughout our lives, that we're going to be accountable for how we approach the Lord, which it, it's interesting because both of these topics, they flow both out of your sermon, but they actually flow together. How in the world do we now approach the transcendent God? Um, and it's not simply come as you are any way you want. That that has some merit. I understand the, the spirit of it. God wants you authentic and real, no hypocrisy. That's true. But even after the sacrifice of Jesus, um, and that's setting us up for another scripture, that where Jesus and the Samaritan woman, John 4, that he is having a, a redemptive conversation with her, a divine appointment. And he touches a little too close to her shame. And she tries to divert with, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers tell us that the place to worship is on this mountain, but your people say it's in Jerusalem. What do you say? And Jesus responds her, now I'm actually reading. Uh, John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. So actually he's taking out one of those extremes because the right answer was no, only in Jerusalem. And he's going, no, there, there's, it's not that extreme. But then he puts up the guardrails that have been true from Cain and Abel's time all the way up through the New Testament times and our times. And Jesus says the hour is coming uh, when neither this, this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, so they don't have knowledge. Um, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, 
But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Um, so the Greek words pneuma, uh, which we would actually, part of our, our um, explanation of, of a disciple is one who thinks like, loves like, or thinks, learns, I don't know. You were, yeah, learns about. Learns, learns about, about, loves like, uh-huh. and lives for Jesus. Yes. That, that he's hitting on a couple, I, I would say he's hitting on all three. The father, you will worship in spirit, that's pneuma, and truth, aletheia, which is objective truth. Not your truth, my truth, but the truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So he just put up the guardrails, and those can be unpacked and nuanced, but that's the envelope. So it has to be in accordance with truth. We've, we're given, uh, what, 31,000 verses, 66 books, uh, much clarity of right and wrong. Um, and it's not just just doctrinal truth, it's lifestyle. It's our hands, it's our, whether or not our lives are, are what the New Testament writers would, would write, axios. Is there, does our profession match our lifestyle before we draw near to God or is there hypocrisy present? In our lives, I, that's what I think. First Corinthians nine yeah. is: is there hypocrisy? Is there consistency in my profession, my lifestyle? If not, I need to deal with that before the Lord. Um, but spirit pneuma um, certainly has a little bit more of that charismatic. Um, is there a connectivity? Is this from my heart, or am I just going through the motions? The I've met Lutherans that like to call themselves the frozen chosen, saying, "Hey, we don't get very emotional. We don't connect." You know, we don't get very inspired, but we're doing the right thing. We've got a really good doctrinal statement. Um, and so I would, I would argue that this has to do with my mind. This has to do with my, my heart and decisions, my emotions, my relationships, uh, that second circle. And it absolutely has to do with our lifestyle when we're outside of the four walls of the gathering, that there, there must be axios. There must be... Uh, what's how is that written in the in the English? Um, walk in a manner worthy. The word worthy is axios. That that the lifestyle matches the profession and the doctrinal statement. So the head, the hearts, and the hands align under spirit and truth. Can I make a? Um, I'm going to do an observation and then say this is how this has impacted me personally, and I think us as a church. So as you're, as you're talking about that interaction with this marriage woman, he takes away the extremes, right? So he says, and I'm thinking back to our passage in Leviticus 16, that these are all shadows and, and they're not the, the kind of goat that takes the mm-hmm. sins isn't the point, right? Mm-hmm. So he takes away all that stuff. And that, that made me think about, I think we talked about in a previous episode, um, the, how, um, uh, the things of God transcend culture and time and even things like personality. And, but it's not, um, it's not limited to, you need to um, dress as the ancient Israelites dressed, or you need to have these kind of um, dietary restrictions, or you need to have this kind of family structure or this kind of government structure in order to process this. So it really is a global cross-cultural, cross-time religion, which would make sense of something actually transcendent. Yeah. So, I, so I'm thinking about that. And then that makes me think it, that should keep us so humble because it's not that we like, um, think about how, um, you said, uh, the, cause the Jews had the knowledge, but the Samaritans didn't, but that the, the knowledge isn't, um, that it's so great to be Jewish in terms of like our ethnicity and our culture. The knowledge is God chose to reveal part of himself to us. And then the, the thing that matters is God and not, so it should keep us very humble. And then I think, Oh boy, um, how do I know that it's not just what I like that's going on? And how, how do I, I get, um, I don't want to end up like Nadab and Abihu is what I'm thinking. And so um, two things, two ways that that has shown up, and I've really grown, I would say, in the last year or two um, in, in thinking about these things and how it affects me. Um, one is that we p- have been putting in a call to worship on Sundays to remind me and our team and everyone who walks in the room that it's not our idea to worship God. 
It is God who calls us and we're responding. And so we look at the scripture and say, God tells us, go into the house of the Lord and worship God. And then we do it. And it's not our idea. And it's not, we, we were so generous with our time that we decided to give this gift. It is in response to what God is calling us to do. So that's the first way. And the second way is to take some time. And I think Jim, you talked exactly about this, that, um, when we gather to practice in the morning, the worship team, we take some time and we pray and we, we try every week to have a little time of reflection and confession and repentance and that um, checking ourselves for hypocr- hypocrisy. Um, are we in spirit and truth? Are we coming? And that doesn't mean that like, did we do anything wrong? You're disqualified. It means, it means absolutely we did something wrong. Yep. Are we okay saying, God, I did that wrong and yes. I'm coming to worship yes. you? Would you please um, re- give me a clean heart, uh, Psalm 51, um, renew a right spirit in me so that I can worship you. So it's it's that lack of hypocrisy yeah. that we're trying to set up right at the beginning. Not yeah. that we're perfect. In fact, we're so not perfect. We need to be here. You know, I, and I'm going to just throw this in. Being a, being a pastor and a preacher, I can't... I, th- there's call for great humility. I mean, at least just having a, a, a fear of the Lord and then recognizing what you're about to do and doing that on a weekly rhythm of even if I'm a, I'm a train wreck throughout the week, and this isn't how you want to do, you want to actually walk in a manner worthy. And, and you don't want to just say, oh, I can confess and repent on, on Sunday morning. And yet there's an exercise, regardless of how good of a week I think I had in my thought life and my words and my love for my family and neighbors, um, my driving uh, remains to be a problem. Uh, ask Timothy, my son, you, you'll get a real, real honest answer from Tim, uh, if dad's godly on the road. But um, there's a check yourself before you wreck yourself. Mm-hmm. You're about ready to proclaim. I'm, I was reflecting on Isaiah 6. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Isaiah had been a professional prophet, of a, a called a prophet for many years when he encountered God and the transcendent. And he said, I am undone. And God, he sends an angel, a creature of fire needs to use tongs to get a coal from his altar of holiness. Even the angel can't touch the coal and he touches it to its lips, to Isaiah's lips. And he says, your sins are removed. Your, your iniquity is atoned for. Great symbol. We didn't touch that in this series, but there's this awareness of like, oh crud, I'm about ready to speak on behalf of God. And who am I to do such a thing? And oh, that all of us, that we're going to gather to even sing a song of worship to God would have the same reverence. I just have an advantage because my job was, uh, it, it was premeditated longer and thought about, and I'm about ready to be the solo voice in a, in a moment of time. But oh, that we would all have that same kind of uh, preparation and reverence and uh, do house cleaning. It's, it's, uh, and I, I was actually misquoting uh, 1 Corinthians 11. So let a man examine himself for the, for the Lord's Supper. But boy, um, that we even show up, we're going to shake someone's hand. We're going to say, how are you doing this morning on a Sunday morning? And then what if we, we took that and supplied it to all of life? That our life was going to be a Romans 12, one kind of um, a living sacrifice kind of worship. And that we would recognize at all times, I am to live in a, in a spirit of spirit and truth worship. Uh, my days without end Um, and we're not going to get it perfect and if we think we do then then we've got a pride problem (laughs) and we got to go back to the the beginning so so before we um kind of point ahead to next week which is easter weekend i wanted to ask a quick question um and we'll do it we'll do uh uh just a summary if which I know is going to be taxing, but like a short response. Um, I'm very curious to know, we've been doing this atonement series. It's um, uh, pictures and uh, types of the atonement in the Old Testament. We've been doing it, I think it's, is it six weeks total? Total is that right? with so, Easter. So yeah. six different pictures, um, about uh, probably three months of study time and really talking about it, including preparation time. So my question is, um, for you personally, do you have a 
a, a takeaway or a big idea or an, Im, an impact or whoa, um, this has been the thing that resonated with me after, out of this series. Is there, is there something that has really stuck out to you? Um, that, that, I mean, I guess I would say, and it actually comes more in terms of as I'm doing studying and then throughout the week meeting with people mm-hmm. rather than the actual uh, uh, preaching or have, or sitting under the preaching of the word. I've been struck by the importance that people grasp the atonement because the atonement is tied specifically to the doctrine of justification. Mm-hmm. And so many people, as we've preached through these texts, have expressed, I'm not entirely sure how to put it into my own words, but have expressed a struggle to grasp that they are justified, that there's nothing they need to do, that their sins have been atoned for, and that their sins are not so dark that the light of Christ can't bleach them out, that they're not so bad that the blood of Christ cannot cover them. So I think, as I think about it, one of the things that I've taken away is I probably should have been doing this in in previous iterations of pastoral duty and things like that the the focusing on the atonement focusing on the justification of of sinners by god just seems to be something that is well one it is the core of our faith but it it seems to be something that people really wrestle and grapple with and i think for me it's easy to get bogged down in things taking place in culture or just the importance of understanding the content of the Bible normally or even some of the the tangential things that then connect onto the gospel and sort of fill out the biblical narrative or the biblical worldview. And it struck me the, the relevance for our people and the resonance it's had with them to simply go straight at the core of the gospel and point at the atonement. You're a sinner. Your sins need to be, that problem needs to be solved. Here's how it was solved. And show in six different pictures of the Old Testament how God was pointing forward to the coming of Christ. A good, a good reminder that the peripheral problems mm-hmm. um, need a, need a, a nucleus, a, right? The, it's the center yeah. that needs the adjusting. There's not a reason the, why there's yes. primary, secondary, and yes. tertiary, third level yes. issues. And yeah. I'm going to add for me, yeah. uh, you know, again, going back to being, uh, I get to get paid to actually study the scripture to this depth. And now um, a new partner, actually two new partners in the last couple of years here, our conversations as we study together or, or bounce ideas off each other, prepare for Sunday, you're, you're preparing worship sets. And um, me as a preacher and, or even just sitting under Tyler's teaching that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't personally develop that text and sitting under and so the ones I'm doing the ones he's doing and seeing the meta narrative from from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation and the various points in between and the, the theme just just growing more and more magnificent and clear God burying artifacts and, and putting them aside for a millennia only to have them fulfilled and explained that God is so very patient. And I, I don't think as I, as I look at the pictures and all the study and all the notes, the things that got preached, the things that didn't even make it to the, to the manuscript or the, the pulpit, I can't do better than what the apostle Paul says here in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So I heard Tyler from you to say, this is the core, this is the, the atonement and our justification by Christ, faith alone, grace alone is the, is the core, the root of our, mm-hmm. of our life, our life together, our, the way we process through life. And, um, Jim, you're saying, here's this, Look at the tapestry yes. and this magnificent um, p- 
piece of art that that God has woven through redemptive history um, and the meta narrative, that grand story. And I would say, on for my part, um, the the thing that I've taken away is I'm thinking about this very old song. I love to tell the story, right? That 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 super old song, or what we sang a little bit this past Sunday, "Amazing Love." How can it be that Thou, my God, would die for me? That this is the story to take both of yours. This is what Christians do is we, we tell this story and we think about this story and we, we sing it and we ponder it and we remind each other. And, um, it hasn't been, it's not a waste to revisit this every week. It is the best. It is, it will never, it is transcendent and will, Mm -hmm. it is the rabbit that never stops, Yep. you know? And so it's deep and full, um, really quick, um, talk to us about uh, Easter. So we have Good Friday. Um, We're doing a time of fasting and prayer and then gathering for some corporate worship, prayer, and communion and a time of reflection. And then Sunday morning, um, we do our last session of the atonement and give us a a two sentence. What what are we looking at? What's our last picture? Yes. Snake on a pole. How in the world is that redemptive? How in the world is that at one minute atonement? A serpent... Serpents biting people, Numbers 21. Five verses, five verses in the wilderness wandering record, and then hundreds of years of silence. No one ever mentions it. Well, shows up in 2 Kings. Um, King Hezekiah has to destroy it and break it into pieces because, because it comes a, an object of worship in an idol. Um, and that's, that's it. And then it doesn't show up again until the words of Jesus. So we're looking at atonement raised that's our easter message that and you can join us this sunday for easter um we have a 6 a.m sunrise service or a 10 a.m service and we'd love to for everyone to join us for our um, easter brunch and time of fellowship at 9 a.m you can find more uh information about journey church um at our website which is journeyefc.org god bless and we'll talk to you again soon thank you for listening to journey church tucson sermon podcast We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.